3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Good morning, Inez. This is Thursday Breakfast. Yes, it is. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we will play our sting. So I'm <laughs> talking myself through things, so I do everything in order. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And now uh, we are going to have a little chat through the news headlines this week. And give me one second, so my phone is dying. Um, I think we will go to a little community service announcement. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 10th of November. In the latest on the Medicare hacking incident, hackers have released customer data on the dark web, targeting high-profile drug and mental health patients. The basic information of 5 million Medibank customers was posted yesterday, which comes after the data of 10 million customers was compromised in October. A list of around 100 people with high-profile surnames who have been sought treatment for drug use or mental health issues was among the data released. The Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association says the release of such private information could cause a lot of harm for the people affected. As of last night, customers had still not been notified about whether their personal information is among the leaked by the hackers. Medibank has warned customers that more data is likely to be leaked as it refuses to pay the ransom demanded by hackers. In other news, community legal centres are concerned that a funding shortfall leaves victim survivors of family violence unsafe and unsupported at family violence courts in Victoria. The Royal Commission into Family Violence recommended specialist courts designed to provide comprehensive care to victim survivors. While community legal centres were given funding to provide services at the first five specialist courts, an additional seven courts have been left unsupported. The peak body for community legal centres in Victoria said without additional funding for the new specialist courts, many victim survivors would be left without adequate legal assistance and support. Also in headlines this week, a recent Supreme Court decision confirmed claims that the Victorian state government logging practices are pushing threatened species towards extinction, resulting in third legal case loss for Vic Forest in two weeks. Permanent injunction details are yet to be finalised, but... The justice presiding over the case proposed that Vic Forest must survey the whole of every forest stand they intend to log and stop logging in the immediate home range of greater gliders and yellow-billed gliders. 
Grassroots environmental groups involved in ongoing protests and legal cases say that thanks to community efforts, they can see the end of clear felling of Victorians' precious native forests. In other news, with a warning for First Nations listeners that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. The coronial inquest into Kumanjayi Walker's death has reached its halfway point, and this week has investigated the culture inside the Northern Territory Police. The coroner heard that open use of racist and sexist language among some police officers was rife noting that the whole attitude towards First Nations people and attitudes towards use of force is relevant to the inquest. Mr Walker was shot and killed in 2019 by Constable Zachary Rolfe, and the inquest this week heard that Rolfe repeatedly engaged in concerning behaviours before shooting Mr Walker including failure to turn on his body-worn camera and making arrests which resulted in injuries. The hearings continue until early December, before reconvening in early 2023. And finally in headlines, and an additional warning for First Nations listeners, that the headline contains mention of harm against First Nations children. The Uruk Justice Commission has this week announced it will investigate the impact of the child protection and criminal justice systems on First Nations people in Victoria. The hearings will commence in December and include evidence from witnesses regarding the harm done to First Nations people by unjust laws and practices, and insights into why governments are yet to make changes. Record numbers of First Nations children are being taken from their families at a rate 20 times greater than non-First Nations children. In a statement, Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, Deputy Commissioner of the Uruk Justice Commission, said we are seeing a new stolen generation happening before our eyes. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 10th of November, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And now we are going to go to a quick track before the rundown, uh, just to get you grooving in the morning. So it's called Big Girls by Pricey.
And now we're going to go through what we have on for the show today. So our very first guest is Lily Ryan, who joined us last week, and she is a software security consultant and board member of Digital Rights Watch. And last week she spoke to us about cyber attacks, reform, and biometrics. And today she joins us again to speak about cybersecurity and personal protection in the digital world. And then I am excited to introduce that we will be having Huang Tran Nguyen, uh, who is an artist working in social practice to address overlapping cultural histories, politics of place and the role of the art worker, as well as Sebastian Henry Jones, who is a curator and writer led by an interest in DIY thinking, whose practice is informed by striving for a personal ethics with sincerity, generosity, honest communication and learning at its core. Today, they will be joining us to explore the context that has informed the project House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue, currently showing across and in between FCA, Footscray Community Arts and West Space. And then lastly, we'll be joined by Simon Robertson, who is an architect and a managing director of the non-profit Design and Research Practice Office, joins us today to discuss Office's Retain, Repair and Reinvest project. This ongoing project has involved developing proposals for public housing refurbishment and retention as an alternative to the Victorian government's big build, big housing build plans to demolish and rebuild these estates. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker color than black. So we were in the camp, we have two options. Are they deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death? or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that, to the soundtrack of Amelie, a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. So we have a little bit of time before our interview, so we're going to play some sweet tunes that you can listen to your cup of tea and coffees with. Um, So this is Azena by B.Y. Sampa the Great and Milan Ring. Said I'm looking for the old me To be one that won't get Said I'm coming home to To be once before me Looking for the old me To be one that won't get Said I'm coming home to To be once before me Said I'm looking for the old me I'm 
this about your best in the night though Face spirit so I know you've always been close Finally understand the reason that you had to go Tell a friend, tell a fan, say I'm coming I was lost, now I'm found with some money Got my flag and I wouldn't try for nothing Back now, so I know they're gonna love it Oh yeah, what's up, let me get it moving We gon' come on, show you how to do it Big up, say why, family be the truest Hermes where the heartbeat, got me sticking to him Like a beat, yeah, I feel it in my chest Part one, got me right, so I swing to the left About time I arrive, and I come bearing this Break bread with my brother, show love to my sister For the army That was Azina by B. Wise, Sam for the Great, and Milan Ring. To celebrate International Transgender Awareness Week, 13th to 19th of November, the Trans Pride March Melbourne is on Sunday, 13th of November. Trans Pride March Melbourne highlights trans visibility like never before by uplifting voices in our community and continuously passing the mic. Attend the march Sunday 13th of November at 11.30am outside Victorian State Library, Swanston Street, CBD. And for those who can't make it along, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the march from 12 to 4pm. Your favourite Sunday Arvo queer programmers will bring you interviews, speeches and all the action live from the march. Tune into 3CR Digital, stream online at 3cr.org.au or dial into 855am for Trans Pride March Melbourne, 
Sunday 13th November. So you can catch 3CR's coverage of the Trans Pride March if you can't make it in person this Sunday from 12pm. And I think next up we will go to another song. Inez, what are we going to be listening to next? We are going to listen to a 3CR favourite and regular, <laughs> uh, Nabi Karan, uh, from her album The Brown Church. And it was a production in Brisbane, and now it's a beautiful album. And, yeah, this is one of the songs called Where Are You From? And also um, there is a gig that she's playing at too that we can inform you of after the song. So this is called Where Are You From? by Nabi Karan. Dream. Liberty brown skin come shine on me Liberty brown skin in the mainstream This golden speech is ancestral preach I see your schemes but I'm ahead of you On stolen land making breakthroughs More than your spice for revenue Don't see my view, come kiss these shoes Check this parade of colored babes Up your bougie and here to stay I want your rights and your privilege I want your God and your ignorance But you'll never have this holy vision Third world race with queer baptism Fashion on fleek in my blessed kingdom This is daily life, not an exhibition you make it okay to constantly check my space Your lack of place is displacing me with hate I go from a car to a car to a lease that will never have my name Hello Mr. Tone Police, you are calling me in great Where are you from? Where are you from? I'm losing sleep, recheck your gossip I'm joyfully building all these mansions Disregarding your distractions Believe me, I was born this flawless Mean it when you call me goddess Bring me forth for your shopping pose Use my kindness for your fame oh, no. Call me face for your chest game Better pay my check, mate Better give me my rupees, please What more than you give your Say you don't want it back Take me to your land And say it doesn't make you mad Take me to your land Take me to your land Don't you ever question Your connection to the sea Don't you ever question Your connection to the trees Don't you ever question Your God when you're down on your knees Take me to your land Take me to your land
and yet you make it okay to constantly check my space. You got there first and yet you don't want to make this about race. I want to go from a dream to a life with joy that'll always have my name. Hello, Mr. Toad, is still calling me in great. Where are you from? Who's like you on? Where are you from? Who's like you on? And that was Where Are You From by Nabi Garan. And just to make sure that you know where to get your greatest dancing <laughs> in, um, it will. Nabi Garan's actually playing um, her DJ set uh, with Nightfall. And that is on December the 2nd at Lucky Cock, which is Friday, yeah, Friday the 2nd at 9 pm till 3 am. And that's also with Claddy and Indica and KS. MBA. That sounds like an amazing lineup. We should definitely go together. Uh, yeah, let's definitely do that. And now I just wanted to do a little shout out to Priya, who very sadly can't be with us today. Priya is our rock. Um, and if you're missing their lovely voice on air, um, that's why, because they can't be with us today. So this next song is actually dedicated to Priya <laughs> and um, Inez, which, what will it be? I think we are going to play Smile by Izzy because Priya makes us smile every time they are with us in the studio. So we're going to play this one's for you, Priya. <laughs> <laughs>
And that was Smile by Easy for our 3CR favourite, Priya. Um, and now we will be going to an interview with Lily Ryan. And Lily Ryan is a software security consultant and board member for Digital Rights Watch. And last week we heard from Lily about cyber attacks, reform and biometrics. And today she joins us again to speak about cybersecurity and personal protection in the digital world. Thanks so much for joining us here again, Lily. No worries. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, today I know we're doing like almost like a follow-up second part to our interview. Um, I think when I was researching this, I was looking at how much data companies actually end up having on us. Like we have smart devices with data for sleeping habits, for banking, how long we're scrolling. Could you outline maybe why companies want so much data on us? There are a couple of different reasons for this. One of them is because it helps the companies to um, understand a bit more about who we are as, as customers, um, whether we would like that or not, and whether we understand the extent to which they want that. So part of it is they want to know how we're using their services. That's one of the main reasons that companies will you know, talk, justify to themselves about why they're gathering this data. Um, a lot of it is also gathered sort of just in case, I suppose. Uh, it depends what kind of stuff it is. If you're interacting with an application, for example, people may want to know where you're clicking, what you're doing, and that kind of stuff. But some companies go further and they will start gathering things like if you have your, an app on your phone, uh, depending what permissions you've given it, it may start downloading your contact data out of your phone, for example. Um, it does need to ask for permission to do this, but many apps do this, such as uh, Facebook, for example, will ask for your contact list uh, in order to help you find people. Um, but then they have also been known to share those contact lists internally to um, use them for other purposes, which is not something that you would probably expect them to do. So there are a lot of different reasons why companies will do this. But uh, at the end of the day, what happens is many of them will end up collecting quite a large amount of data about you uh, just from interacting with their services far beyond what you might expect. Yeah, it sounds like there is so much more than meets the eye. I think that's pretty common also with anything in the digital world right now. I think another question that I have is like, why is it actually important to protect your data? Because I know we say something about targeted ads, but then a lot of people are like, well, it's just a targeted ads and sometimes they're helpful. So I guess yeah. why is it actually important to protect your data? Um, I think that, uh, you know, recent events in terms of the data breaches that we've been seeing from lots of different companies recently have probably helped some folks understand what what value criminals see in data like this. Um, so one of the reasons is because, you know, if data like that gets breached, then that can be a significant problem for the folks who have given that data or didn't even realize they were giving that data. Um, in the case of the data breaches themselves, uh, a lot of the data that was breached was given to those companies for legitimate reasons. So, you know, in the Medibank case, they need to know your healthcare data because they're processing healthcare claims. So that's not really, you know, them using it for a, a different purpose. But when we're talking about apps um, on your phone, like, like Facebook, like TikTok, that kind of thing, um, they can gather a lot more information about your, you know, your browsing habits and the people you interact with. And 
that information can be valuable just in terms of building out social maps and also for profiling you partly for ads but if that if that data ends up you know in the hands of somebody with less uh, corporate-minded goals, Mm -hmm. um, that can also be used for all kinds of extortion and other kinds of criminal activities. Yeah, I feel like even in the, through the Medibank Medibank breaches, we saw that, you know, people's, if people are being admitted into mental health care facilities or alcohol and other drug facilities, that that is now being weaponized against them. And it just goes to show how, I guess, dangerous that can be. And I know in last week we spoke about you know how this can be used for extortion but now it's leaking really private medical information um and how it's important for companies to just not store data in the first place but i guess in terms of personally protecting your data within these companies what can we as consumers do to control our data like can we download it and like delete our accounts and wipe everything from the server what power do we hold i think there's, there's a thing, a bit of a distinction between the data that companies hold because they have a legitimate reason for it, like Medibank, for example, um, who has to hold data like that in order to do what, you know, you're a customer of theirs to do, and and companies that gather data just because or for, for advertising purposes and things like that. And they require different levels of thought about protection. So in the case of of a service that you've signed up to and you've given them the data fully conscious that they have that data. Um, So for a healthcare provider, for example, you would expect them to have healthcare information. That is, that is a different kind of thing. That's where we can, we can be talking a bit more about understanding um, what their obligations are, understanding also um, what our recourse is when that, when that data gets breached. And Medibank have actually made it pretty clear about, you know, the things that they've got on offer that can help people. But also at a, at a government level, um, you know, the government has started to implement stricter, stricter fines um, for companies whose data gets breached like this, where it's unavoidable for them to hold some of this data. But if you're talking about other kinds of apps that are profiling you uh, for, for mostly for advertising purposes, but the data can be used for many kinds of things, um, that's where it's really important when you're in installing things um, on your laptop, on your phone, wherever it is, to check what permissions they're asking for, particularly on a phone, to see how many of them are necessary. Um, Android and iOS have become much better recently about prompting for, for your permission for certain apps to do certain things. So if they say, would you like this app to access your camera, for example, the app might have a good reason for doing that. You know, it might be a camera app. Um, but also, if um, if you give the app permission to access a camera, it could access that camera any time that you are using it. So it's important to understand when that's happening. And that's one way that data could be gathered. So when you're on iOS, for example, if a camera or a microphone is being accessed, a little orange dot turns up in the corner of the screen so you can tell what's happening. Um, not all Android phones have the same equivalent. But it is important to think about what, what access you're granting to these things, and uh, and also what data you're sharing on platforms that aren't explicitly for that purpose. So, um, if you are, for example, sharing medical data in a in a, um, a different context, for example, if not a medical healthcare provider, consider where that information might be stored, um, how long it might be held, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, I think it's really important to, I guess, read the fine print and, um, yeah, really understand what permissions are happening through your apps as well. I guess also in your work as a cyber uh, software security consultant, is there anything that really surprises you when you're speaking with companies or consumers? I think one of the things one of the things that surprises me often is how many folks have you know collected data because they they want well they they think they need to um, because it is sort of sort of the background culture of the way the web operates now is to make sure that you you're gathering as much as possible in order to understand as much as possible about the people who use your service um, and and making the service better in a lot of cases that's why most most folks will gather this data but um, not everybody has always thought through the implications of what they're gathering and how it could be used in other ways and even software developers who work for some companies that have gone on and sold on some of this data to other companies um, are surprised to realize that the things that they were building that gathered data um, were, were gathering it and it was being used for purposes other than what they were expecting. So I wouldn't say that that actually surprises me at this point. This is pretty much how, how the web works. But it is it is certainly something I think that surprises a lot of folks, even who work in, in these industries a lot of the time, that that not everything gets used for the purpose that you think it will. Yeah, I think it's also hard to know what kind of control to have over that. I know even with the recent, um, <laughs> with all the fiasco that's going on with Twitter, uh, do you have any like comments about that? Because I know that people are really concerned about their own data and then feeling like, you know, one person has a complete hold over the entire website. And that feels kind of scary. Yeah, that, the, the Twitter <laughs> situation <laughs> is a great example of the way that um, a, a service that you may previously have trusted for something can also change depending on who's in charge of it or what the politics of uh, the place looks like at the time too. So while you might trust something at one point in time, it may not be true always. Um, and I think that that is something that a lot of folks are realizing in a lot of different contexts at the moment. And Twitter is certainly one example where we've seen a lot of people leaving Twitter because they just don't have any confidence at the moment in the way that the platform's going to be handled or run, um, which I think is fair enough, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's totally fair enough. Um, and I... It's it's hard to not feel, um, I don't know, a little bit overwhelmed with it all and being like, I need to delete my whole website, <laughs> my whole account. Um, and I guess knowing that we are in a digital age and we're working through, working with so many different things from like banking to real estate, um, I guess it's hard to know how to consolidate best practices across all of those platforms. Is there anything that you think that we should keep in mind, I guess, each time that we're logging in or interacting with a service that requires our personal data? Well, I want to be really clear that we are talking about a really broad range of services when, we just, when we're talking about online services or yeah. apps. And a lot of them will be used for different reasons. Some of them will be very legitimate. Um, and some of them are also companies that are not traditionally software companies as well that are, you know, providing services they would traditionally have provided regardless of whether or not the internet existed. Um, and so we're talking about a couple of different categories of, of data gathering. 
there are the ones where you provide the data to a company for that purpose. And that's where we need to talk about recourse in the event that the company ends up being breached and there's not much that we as as customers can do about that fact because some companies do need to have some categories of data. Um, And then there is the category uh, where data is being gathered about us by by companies that perhaps operate in in different jurisdictions and have different laws that they're beholden to or for different reasons. so, and, and that's where we might be talking about social media apps and, and other kinds of things. So there are a couple of different distinctions, and it's important to bear that in mind when you're thinking about how to respond to this, because it's it's very easy to feel overwhelmed by it um, and to, to feel scared about it too. But there are manageable things that you can do in, in both of these cases. So in the case where we're talking about big data breaches, those ones... Like, they, they suck. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, we, we talk about legal recourse, um, the companies themselves providing um, lots of resources to to customers um, and the government, too, being stepping, has been stepping in to help uh, state and federal in terms of, you know, being able to change your driver's license number and your passport number and that kind of thing. Um, and Medibank, I know, has been providing support to customers as well, including financial support where it's needed for for them, um, given the, the kind of data that has been leaked from there. Um, in terms of other kinds of data breaches, um, there are there are a lot of things that we can do when it comes to sharing data with services that we're not clear on the purpose of, um, and and that can often be about just being mindful about what you're sharing and with whom and asking yourself why they need it um, and also whether they need it for a specific point in time or whether they might need it forever because quite often the default is we'll keep it forever. So working out if there is an option for we'll keep it for a short period of time is something that's, that's worth thinking about too. But it is something that I also don't want people to feel despondent about or beat themselves up over because it's it's the way that that we've been encouraged to use a lot of these services. So it's not like everybody who who's had a data breach has done the wrong thing. Um, a lot of the time, it's just about the fact that we real we really need to seriously reevaluate the way that the system works at at a very holistic level. Um, which is a much bigger conversation. So I don't want people to feel like they're the ones who've done something wrong if they're the subject of a breach or if their data is, is suddenly out there. That's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to yeah not blame ourselves um, and try to do the best that we can because, yeah, we are navigating through the world, as you have said. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with or highlight just before um, we wrap the interview up? I would say, um, particularly given the atmosphere at the moment with regard to data breaches in particular, um, a lot of folks, uh, well, a lot of scammers have been having a field day with this and sending out a lot of messages, even if um, the people who are the receiving end haven't been the subject of a breach. I think that there's just enough sort of fear in the air at the moment that scammers are taking advantage of that. So please be mindful if you're receiving messages demanding things like information or money from sources that you have never heard from before or that you're not sure of, um, 
be be wary of that. Question that. A lot of the time, um, it could be it could be a scammer. Find an independent way to verify this information if you need. If they're claiming to be from the tax office, for example, um, perhaps go and independently contact the tax office yourself via the details on their website to check with them whether that is real. Um, but right now, there is a big atmosphere of that kind of thing going on. So just be mindful of the messages that you're receiving because. Uh, a lot of scammers are taking this as a big opportunity right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for highlighting that. Very important, especially right now, um, to look out for any phishing attempts or yeah, any scams at all. Always try to verify it. But thank you so much, Lily. Hope you have a really wonderful day. Thank you. And that was Lily Ryan, who was is a software security consultant and board member of Digital Rights Watch. Last week, we heard from Lily about cyber attacks, reform and biometrics, and today she spoke about cybersecurity and personal protection in the digital world. And now we will be going to a song which is called Punku, which is painted by the moon. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Nothing 
So that was Punku, uh, painted by the moon. And it is currently 7.51am on 3CR Thursday breakfast. And now... From November 11th to 13th at Catalyst Social Centre, Nam's newest radical community space, comes Catalyst Festival, a weekend of connection and resistance. There'll be workshops and talks on decolonisation, alternatives to police and queer and trans parenting. Performances from Sky Belly, Double Doll String Band and Race Rage, plus films, food and more. Full program and more info at tinyurl.com forward slash Catalyst Fest program. Catalyst Festival this weekend at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. Catalyst Social Centre is a 3CR supporter. And now we will be going to an interview with Hong Trang Yun, who is an artist working in social practice to address overlapping cultural histories, politics of place and the role of the art worker, as well as Sebastian Henry Jones, who is a curator and writer led by an interest in DIY thinking, whose Patrick is informed by striving for a personal ethics with sincerity, generosity, honest communication at its core. Good morning, Seb and Huang. So Seb and Huang are joining us today to speak about um, the context that has informed the project House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue, which is currently showing across and in between Footscray Community Arts and West Face. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to chat this morning. Good morning. So happy to be here. Morning, Lena. Thanks so much. <laughs> So we'll just get right into it because um, we've got double the content, I guess, <laughs> but it's great because we'll get to perspectives here, which I think is really important. So this multifaceted project, House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue, is articulated around and through the cancellation of the Vietnamese bilingual program at Footscray Primary School. And I wanted to ask you, Huang, can you give us a bit more context on the history of the bilingual program and the events preceding its termination in 2020? Yes, yeah, so the, the program has its roots as a mother tongue program established in 1985 and the school population is predominantly Vietnamese heritage. Um, and in 1997, the program opened up to all students um, as a bilingual program. And then in 2005, uh, Vietnam study tour started, um, which was hugely popular. Um, so around this time, uh, gentrification also started to change the demographics of the school. So although Vietnamese students remained the biggest non-white group, um, the area was obviously changing. And in 2016, the then principal just quietly announced the reductions of hours in curriculum delivery in Vietnamese which effectively ended the bilingual program. Um, so maybe I'll just quickly talk about bilingual education compared mm. to low. So low, I think most people in Victoria have done that, like an hour or so in you know, Italian or Japanese and you learn a few words, but you don't really sort of take much away after you've left school, whereas bilingual education 
the curriculum is taught through language up to 50% of the, the school hours, so, so up to 12 hours. So when you reduce that back to one or two hours, it's effectively loaded again. Um, so the, the sort of unilateral decision by the principal at the time took the whole school community by surprise and parents, you know, garnered enough support to convince the then minister to intervene and reverse the decision. Um, and one of the reasons given to end the program by the principal was that it took time away from literacy. And what he meant by that was English literacy. Um, mm. So, you know, um, so in Australia, we, we have what is known as a monolingual mindset and we, we equate literacy to English. Mm-hmm. So, so um, uh, I guess after the minister's intervention, the principal effectively lost face. So he continued to undermine the program. Um, and although by 2020, um, there was still about 70% of support for the program from parents, um, those in positions of power still orchestrated you know, um, the demise of the program leading to the decision um, in at the start of 2020 to um, um, during the start of pandemic lockdown to end the program once and for all. So, yeah. Mm. yeah, it's um, really sad that it was ended and in such a way that uh, it was almost like it was going to disappear uh, without anyone knowing about it like myself as a monolingual person as a child of um immigrant parents i wouldn't have even known that there was bilingual programs ever in australia had it not been for um the exposure of uh this pro uh process of cancellation that you have kind of put together in your exhibition. So I think it's really important that it doesn't kind of slip away silently and it is remembered and discussed. And I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on uh, throughout experiencing this exhibition is that we really need examples of other ways of being if uh, we want to enact resistance. So seeing an example of bilingual education that was actually, you know, enshrined in our official education systems is really important for future generations to imagine other ways of being that is not necessarily monolingualism. So leading on from that, my overall understanding of this exhibition is that it's really a collaboration of community. There was a lot of different people that contributed to it and it was collated by you, I'm going to say Huang, because I know that um, you have expressed that you're not comfortable with taking onus or authorship of the content and I can really understand because there's so many different um, points of view expressed in the exhibition. And in the case of the West Space section, Seb, that was facilitated by you. I was wondering if you could both speak to how you developed this from being something quite dispersed and action-based to realising its elements in the form of an exhibition. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll just start by saying um, the 
Kwong has been involved in this kind of advocacy work for a long time um, before he even knew he was going to have an exhibition uh, about it at West Bay in 2022. So um, a lot of the material he was deciding how... First, he had to assist to a lot of different kinds of material, but um, ultimately the decision about how to display that in the kind of public realm was down to him. Uh, where I found my responsibility as a curator kind of began was to help him situate um, those kind of broader histories and stories within the location of West Space. And that means not just like the gallery space, which is just a, a white cube um, mm. in any case, but I guess like socially in um, Collingwood Yards where West Space is located, um, which is in Collingwood and I guess historically... Um, along, yeah, West Space's history. So West Space originated from Footscray, where, of course, is where the other part of the exhibition um, is being displayed at Footscray um, Community Arts. Um, so, yeah, a lot of conversations with Juan so that he could make those decisions about which parts of the story related most closely to West Space and its, um, yeah, uh, the place that it's situated. Yeah. And Huang, I've noticed that um, a lot of the work in the show requires, you know, quite extended periods of attention and kind of careful consideration. Um, How did you decide what to put in that space? And was it just intuitive or did you have any kind of focused intentions? Yeah, so I, I guess but by looking at it, because like language is relational, right? So, and, and, and because this project is multi-sided, mm-hmm. um, um, I guess it really helped to look at it discursively. So, um, and because the campaign also brought together people from very different histories and different positions, um, yeah, it, like it was really important to stay true to that and but also in like what you talk about in terms of paying attention. I mean, in a campaign like this, like I was just a parent that didn't know anything about education, didn't know anything about policy, um, didn't know, you know, how to write bureaucratic language to ministers, you know, and but, but you get thrown into this and so you do have to pay attention. Um, and you have to do that collectively as well. So um yeah, so looking at it in terms of all the material that had been sort of accumulating over, you know, since 2016 and trying in a way to make those relationships a little, a little bit more visible, but also acknowledging that not everything is visible. Like, the gallery can't contain everything. Mm. But, um, but I think the work that is required of campaigners, in a way, is maybe extended to the audience if if they choose to engage with it. So maybe that's a way to answer that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think one of the things that I really loved about, so you've kind of enshrined some of the emails that were included in this um, campaign, and I love how they show the amount of work and knowledge sharing that goes into 
resistance and campaigns like this. And so often it goes unseen, but it's also a really important way to kind of um, teach how to do these things as well, because I think a lot of the time it's quite an isolating experience and, you know, it is mediated by emails and bureaucracy. And yeah, it's really important to see groups of people enacting this type of resistance as an example of how we can share knowledge and, yeah, resist these systems. So my next question is for you, Seb. In the text you composed to accompany this exhibition, you explored some of the challenges faced when navigating a complicity, complicity with and resistance to the pervasive enterprise of colonisation. I think this is kind of especially apparent in the gallery space, which is, you know, there to, well, in the case of West Space, it's really there to platform um, a range of different perspectives that otherwise wouldn't get a platform maybe, but it's also embroiled with bureaucracy and really quite... um, difficult to navigate economic systems like government funding. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to how you approach this when facilitating House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue at West Space, but also maybe how you navigate this in your personal curatorial practice in general. Yeah, totally. I guess um, something that I always ask myself when I'm kind of working to help situate an exhibition at West Space um, which I think was particularly pertinent to Huang's show, was to think about, you know, what actually are the objectives or the aims of this um, of this thing that Huang's kind of um, begun the momentum on and how can, like, having it presented at West Space in a, in a particular way um, be advantageous to those objectives rather than thinking about how can this... Um, story fit neatly within the aims and objectives of West Space and what um, audiences expect of an art exhibition. Mm. Um, A lot of that involved recognising the limitations of presenting something that's very alive, like uh, an advocacy campaign that involves people um, within the kind of clinical and lifeless environment that is um, kind of, yeah, constructed along those very colonial understandings of preservation um, and care, which actually require one to completely separate an object or a particular story um, from its relations in the outside world um, so that it can be understood in isolation um, in a gallery space. So I guess like very um, practical things we did, like we made the decision to involve tactility in the exhibition so audience members can touch a lot of the material on display um, because it's kind of this archival presentation. Um, West Bay staff members and volunteers are very happy to kind of um, act as guides to help people access a lot of the information. Um, and one really beautiful thing is that includes, like, a reading of particular um, material in the archive, um, which is also a, a reflection of the different ways that language can exist. Um, mm in the world, but also in the gallery space. But, yeah, really, um, in my uh, personal practice as a curator, it's it's really about 
listening to the wishes of the artist with um, those kind of dynamics that I mentioned before in mind about what the gallery space um, is, has historically been for um, and thinking about how I can support those wishes as opposed to kind of, um, I don't know, try and fit them neatly into what is really contrived and kind of I also mentioned like historically um, recent innovation like this white cube way of understanding things. I think it was invented in America in the 50s or 60s. So um, it's by no means like a strong, strong, strong tradition, more so a recent tradition. Mm. Yeah, and I think something that stands out to me from that is that when you're navigating those spaces with kind of a mentality of resistance, you also address accessibility. And I think that the ways that you've come up with to combat the white cube space is a really creative and, um, yeah, really support the relational nature of the work. So next up, I wanted to ask this because I think it's, it's just something that I really like to hear. I love to hear um, artists, facilitators and creatives talk about, you know, what is important to them and what's special to them. So I was wondering if each of you could give, it's up to you, a short description of one of your fav- favourite elements of the work or describe something from the show or process that kind of sits close to your heart. Maybe, Huang, you could lead that because I know you've got a long relationship with the work. Um, Yeah, so I guess one of the things that really uh, maybe moved me during the process was actually what what Seb was talking about. Because when when we had our first, in a way, like production meeting with the installer and, and the rest space team, you know, it was it was really clear that it was a very document heavy um, install in um, West Bay. So, and like, and Seb's kind of response to that in terms of you know uh, in involving West Bay staff and volunteers and um, to offer guided tours for guests um, for me was just really exciting because like. But working in terms of the campaign for, for years and having to deal with bureaucracy departments, um, like they they talk about consultation, but what that really means is you know you get to send an email and we'll read it, and that's the extent of consultation. Mm, whereas, yeah. whereas working with an institution like I know I know where space is still an ARI, but it's you know it, it's still an institutional space. Um, so so working with West Space in a way that there's this porous relationship and um, and there's engagement to allow the work to, in a way, breathe for an audience um, was really, yeah, really meaningful for me because um, it allowed the work in a in a white cube, as as Seb was saying before, to have it to have a different kind of life, which yeah, which mm. was really uh, meaningful for me and. Thank you, Huang. That's, yeah, that's beautiful and very important. Sev, do you have anything that you has kind of stuck with you throughout the process? Yeah, and it was actually um, a really late inclusion to the exhibition. It's a, a video work, I guess we could call it, in the context of the show, 
but what it really is, um, it's campaign materials for a lot of the parents that in, were involved um, in the very early stages. They kind of made this video where they're kind of dispelling a lot of the myths around um, like the value of bilingual education. Um, and so they, they're kind of talking to, yeah, their understanding of why language is important, why um, bilingual education is, is a really important um, way of, of learning. But what I've come to slowly realise is that this was a, a, not a group of experts or even, you know, artists. It was a group of parents who mm. decided to collectivise around something they really cared about. And in the process, were having to, I guess, um, really understand quite deeply and, and learn about the, the reasons why they cared so much about this thing. Um, and I just think that is, um, yeah, like really amazing. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's that, something that with me. That video is really quite moving. And finally, I wanted to ask uh, to both of you, do you have any suggestions on how ourselves and our audience can resist the colonising project of monolingualism in our everyday lives? Now, I understand monolingualism as kind of an outreach of assimilation. You know, it's the um, epistemicide of languages, the um, the kind of slow move towards only using English um, so are there any basics that we can kind of use to address that process? And the other thing I wanted to ask is if there were any upcoming events or resources that could potentially help audiences learn a bit more about that in depth. Yeah, I, I might just quickly say that for me it's really about, I mean, any individual understanding um, but the context of where they are, and by that I mean like paying attention to um, what First Nations country you're on, maybe learning the name, um, paying attention to the plants that grow there or learning the history of a specific place. Um, I think that's a really foundational part of um, tackling this idea of monolingualism and all the other things that it's attached to. Mm. Um, but I'll, I'll pass over to you, Kwong. Uh, yeah, thanks. And and I guess going back to that relational thing, um, I guess like for me, the heart of the work is still very much ongoing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm part of the group that formed after the the end of the program called Good Speak. And so um, we're putting together a community and language um, symposium as part of the project. Um, and that's going to be at um, Footscray Arts on the 27th of November. And um, and like Vitzpik's work um, addresses the monolingualism of the institutionalized um, monolingualism of, of Australia. So, and 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 that means not just schools, not just you know bureaucracies. That also means the way families are sort of end up being forced into one language through um, ed through education. Um, you know, through public events, really only catering for one language. So, um, yeah. So if if um, if um, listeners get a chance to come to that, I think um, there's really uh, broad-based programming in terms of you know workshops for young people, workshops um, 
bookmaking workshops, but also panels, discussion panels with you know parents, with educators, with artists, with the broad spectrum that that is required to look at language. Um, um, yeah, so check that out on the website. Um, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes today in our podcast version of the broadcast. So, Seb and Huang, thank you so much for sharing today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah, great. So, we just heard from artist Huang Tran Nguyen and curator Seb Sebastian Henry Jones, who joined us today to explore the context that has informed the project House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue, currently showing across and in between Footscray Community Arts and West Space. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record. Right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. From November 11th to 13th at Catalyst Social Centre, Nam's newest radical community space, comes Catalyst Festival, a weekend of connection and resistance. There'll be workshops and talks on decolonisation, alternatives to police and queer and trans parenting. Performances from Sky Belly, Double Doll String Band and Race Rage, plus films, food and more. Full program and more info at tinyurl.com forward slash Catalyst Fest program. Catalyst Festival this weekend at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. Catalyst Social Centre is a 3CR supporter. And now we are joined by Simon Robinson, who is an architect and a managing director for the non-profit Design and Research Practice Office, who joins us today to discuss their Retain, Repair, Reinvest project. This ongoing project has been involved with developing proposals for public housing refurbishment and as an alternative to the Victorian government, big housing build plans. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Simon. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. Uh, I guess for listeners who aren't familiar, perhaps we could start off by recapping the Victorian government's big housing build plans and the impacts that it'll have on public housing residents in particular. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, the big housing build was announced back in 2020 by the state government and uh, it was announced as an investment of $5.3 billion into 
not only the creation of housing, but also jobs as well throughout Victoria. And the government's committed to uh, 12,000 homes and an increase of 10% in social housing. Um, in regards to public housing, there's no specific reference to an increase in public housing, although there has been uh, a number of public housing estates earmarked for redevelopment. And what we've seen in the past is the government's approach to redeveloping public housing estates is through a demolition rebuild strategy, where they uh, partner up with a private developer, essentially. So uh, existing residents are relocated, the existing homes are demolished, and then uh, a, a um, split of community housing and private housing is delivered on that site. So it's basically a, a privatisation of public housing is occurring. Yeah, and I know that offices um, like Retain, Repair, Reinvest Project has approached that question of public housing um, with quite a different rationale to the Victorian government, which is like instead of, um, yeah, in re reinvesting and refurbishing existing public housing stock. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the feasibility study you conducted at Port Melbourne's Barrack Beacon public housing estate and, yeah, what impacts the proposal would have on the current residents? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that research has kind of come out of just a concern that there was never any refurbishment studies being conducted on these existing public housing estates. So essentially the government and the, the partnership with the developers were saying that all estates were unfit for purpose and that the only way to uh, bring up to contemporary standards of living was through uh, demolition and rebuild. So we developed this strategy, and I have to give a shout-out to um, Miriam McGarry as well, a housing researcher. And we were interested in three key points. So uh, retain, uh, which is retaining the existing residents, uh, repair the existing buildings, and then reinvest any savings back into public housing. Um, so this is basically a, a, a strategy to understand the refurbishment potential of existing public housing estates. And rather than the, the blanket statement that... Uh, all public housing estates are unfit for purpose. We're interested in kind of a site-specific investigation, which we have conducted at Ascot Vale Housing Estate, but more recently down at Barrack Beacon, as you mentioned. Um, so basically, we're interested in how can you refurbish these existing buildings, bringing them up to contemporary standards of living without relocating the residents, um, because there's obviously a, a huge... Um, uh, issue between health, education, uh, of, of relocating existing tenants from, from these communities, which some of them have lived in these, these areas for over 20 years. Um, so we're kind of interested in that uh, process of refurbishment, but also retention of the existing communities. Yeah, it sounds like it's a really important, um, sustainable approach, as opposed to just demolishing everything. Mm. And I was also wondering if you could connect some of the proposal for public housing the, as you said, retention and refurbishment into broader concerns about climate change mitigation and adaptation when it actually comes to existing public housing stock and how might the initiatives like offices support um, actually future-proof public housing in Victoria? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole conversation around sustainability tends to focus on, or within construction anyway, uh, tends to focus on, on building, um, and we want to draw the link between uh, sustainability in construction but also in, within social equity as well. So, I mean, most of the um, climate change affects the most vulnerable communities a lot more. 
So we're interested in uh, how, through reconsidering construction, uh, this issue of continually rebuilding things, um, but also bringing these existing homes up to uh, contemporary standards of living. So within our process, we actually work with an environmental sustainability consultant, uh, Macau, who has been able to uh, quantify some of the thermal performances that refurbishment can achieve in these existing homes. So it's not only a a question around um, the the impact of construction, but also bringing these homes up to um, contemporary standards of living with this idea that um, we can actually reduce the amount of energy consumption in these homes. And within the Barrack Beacon um, case study, uh, we're actually, through the improvements that we're proposing, you can actually reduce energy demand by 29% for these residents. So that's kind of passed on to their bills. Um, And obviously um, those savings are... uh, uh, substantial for for these vulnerable people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, but the estimated savings compared to the big housing build, as you've said, is probably huge. Could you speak to if the government is planning to pursue any of the recommendations that you've made as part of the either the Ascot Vale study or the Barrack Beacon evaluation? Yeah, so the Ascot Vale one, we actually completed, um, was that probably mid, mid this year? And this was looking at specifically one uh, block of flats. So Ascot Vale Estate is, uh, consists of 47 three-storey walk-ups and we looked at a, a block of flats that's been empty for the last two years due to a fire and it had never been fixed up, basically, so it was left empty. And through our study, we found that it, um, it was not only possible to refurbish them, um, but it was also quite, uh, it was quite a cost-saving in doing that. After releasing our report, we actually did present it back to Homes Victoria and then a couple of months later um, we got news that they were actually refurbishing that block of flats, um, which is currently still in construction, but we're kind of keeping an eye on what what happens there. In regards to the Barrack Beacon Estate um, study, uh, we just released the report last week um, and planning on um, holding an exhibition actually tomorrow and then trying to organise some um, presentations to both the Housing Minister, um, Danny Pearson, as well as, as Home Victoria as well. So we'll have to see what the outcome of this one is, but um, hopefully, um, yeah, there's a bit of appetite for thinking about these things a bit differently. No, absolutely. I think um, that's really amazing that you've been able to organise a lot of this. And also, if people want to find out more about uh, officers' work and read more about Retain, Repair and Reinvest, where can we where can we go to find out more? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you can find it on our website, which is www.office.org.au. Um, both the reports are up there uh, for download. And then, yeah, we're obviously having an exhibition tomorrow um, down at the Sandridge Community Centre in Port Melbourne um, from 6 to, I think, about 8.30. But we'll be showcasing all the work we've done at Park Beacon there. Um, the residents will come, come along and um, it should be a, a good night. Amazing. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in our show notes as well. But thank you so much for joining us here today, Simon. Hope you have a lovely day. All right. Thank you. And that was Simon Robertson, Architect and Managing Director for the Non-Profit Design and Research Practice Office, uh, speaking about the Retain, Repair and Reinvest as an alternative to the big housing build plan, as well as the exhibition um, next
uh, tomorrow so that we will have information on our show notes for. And just in line with that, I wanted to say, uh, announce a little bit about the Homes Not Prisons campaign. Now, Victoria spends the least amount of money on public housing per capita of any Australian state or territory. The Homes Not Prisons campaign was established by people with lived experience in the carceral system and have been holding actions in the lead-up to the November 26th state election, demanding an increase to the public housing stock accessible to criminalised and highly disadvantaged women and families. For, for more information on the campaign, go to forward slash homesnotprisons.com.au and tune into our Homes Not Prisons special on 3CR from 12 to 1pm today. Amazing, hugely important. We've had a wonderful show and we're just going to go through a quick rundown of what you've heard today. So firstly, we heard from Lily Ryan, who's a software security consultant and board member of Digital Rights Watch. And we heard from Lily last week about cyber attacks, reform and biometrics. And today she spoke to us about cybersecurity and personal protection in the digital world. And then we heard from Huang Tran Nguyen, an artist working in social practice to address overlapping cultural histories, politics of place and the role of the art worker, as well as Sebastian Henry Jones, who is a curator and writer led by an interest in DIY thinking. Today, Seb and Huang joined us to explore the context, context that has informed the project House of Mother Tongue, House of Other Tongue, currently showing across and in between Footscray Community Arts and Westspace. And lastly, we were joined by Simon Robinson, architect and managing director for non-profit design and research practice office about the alternative to the Victorian government's big housing build, um, which is the retain, repair and reinvest. And all of the information will be in our show notes, as well as some of the songs that we've played today. But that's all about we have time for. So I hope you have a lovely day. And thanks so much for listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye.